So we have reached Thursday of Holy Week in our class discussion. And in Jerusalem, there would be a frenzy of activity as families make last-minute preparations for Passover. Lambs are purchased, homes are cleaned of leavened bread. And I want to open today's lesson with a reading from the book Killing Jesus the, that we've been uh, reading excerpts from all along, uh, a book written by Bill O'Reilly. I'm going to start reading at page 213 and just read a little section here. At the palace home of the high priest Caiaphas, slaves and servants combed the grounds of the enormous estate in search of any barley, wheat, rye, oats, and spelt. They scrubbed sinks, ovens, and stoves of any trace of leaven. They sterilized pots and pans inside and out by bringing water to a boil in them, then adding a brick to allow that scalding water to flow over the sides. Silverware is heated to a glow, then placed one at a time into boiling water. There is no need, however, to purchase the sacrificial lamb, as Caiaphas's family owns the entire temple lamb concession. At the former palace of Herod the Great, where Pontius Pilate and his wife Claudia once again are enduring Passover, there are no such preparations. The Roman governor begins his day with a shave, for he is clean-shaven and short-haired in the imperial fashion of the day. He cares little for Jewish tradition. He is not interested in the traditional belief that Moses and the Israelites were forced to flee Egypt without giving their bread time to rise, which led, led to leavened products being forbidden on Passover. For him, there is breakfast, lunch, and dinner, including plenty of bread, most often leavened with salt instead of yeast in the Roman tradition. Back at his palace in Caesarea, Pilate might also be able to enjoy oysters and a slice of roast pork with his evening meal. But no such delicacies exist or are permitted within observant Jerusalem, particularly not on the eve of Passover. In fact, Caiaphas and the high priest will even refrain from entering Herod's palace as the feast draws near, for fear of becoming impure in the presence of the Romans and their pagan ways. This is actually a blessing for Pilate, ensuring him a short holiday from dealing with the Jews and their never-ending problems, or so he thinks. So depending on where a person lived determined how they calculated the days. For example, the Jews living in the north in the region of Galilee, where Jesus and the disciples were from, would calculate a day as being sunrise to sunrise. Those living in the south in Jerusalem calculated a day as sunset to sunset. And you're probably wondering why I'm bringing this up and why this is important. Well, because the true Passover as observed by the Pharisees, and those priests in Jerusalem would have started at sundown on Thursday and gone to sundown on Friday. Jesus would have recognized Passover as being sunrise on Thursday to sunrise on Friday. So Jesus could technic technically observe the Passover meal on Thursday night and still be able to officially call it Passover. However, most of the families in Jerusalem would be eating Passover meal on Friday evening. Now remember that Caiaphas doesn't want to crucify Jesus on Passover, so he has to get the whole trial and crucifixion done before Friday nightfall. God's plan was that Jesus would be the sacrifice. He would be the Passover lamb. According to the time in Jerusalem, Jesus was in actuality sacrificed on Passover, both literally and symbolically becoming the Passover lamb. So, all right, at the temple, when the animals are being sacrificed for Passover, Jesus would be giving his life for us on the cross. At the time the animal's blood was shed as a symbol of historical significance for all the Jews, Jesus' blood would be shed for you and for me. 
and for all mankind as a symbol of his taking sin upon himself. I just find that so very interesting as we're looking specifically day by day of Jesus' walk to the cross and, and the fact that tomorrow, on Friday, when he is on the cross and he bleeds for us, he dies for us, it would be the same time that the um, high priest would be sacrificing lambs for the Passover. All right, so let's get back to the Passover meal, which is going to occur today, Thursday. During the Passover meal, a lamb is served. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Peter and John were the disciples sent to secure the place for the meal. And they may have secured the lamb for the dinner as well and brought it back for the women to prepare. You know, maybe at this moment on this night, Peter and John didn't realize the significance of the Passover lamb and why they were eating on Thursday rather than on Friday. Maybe it would take years for them to fully understand and grasp the meaning behind Jesus' decision this night. In her book, Jesus the One and Only, Beth Moore says that they did get it, that these two disciples were the only two ever recorded as referring to Jesus as the lamb in Scripture. And so today I want us to turn and look at a verse in 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, um, if you'll turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, um, we'll see Peter's words. Starting in verse 19 through 21, he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter, right there in 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls Jesus the Lamb, perfect without blemish. And then in the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus as the Lamb more than 30 times. So interesting that these two men um, are, are, I don't know, are tasked by Jesus to, to procure the Lamb for their dinner. And many years later, they recognized the importance of the Lamb and who actually was the Lamb. One of the most important, powerful occurrences during the Passover meal for me is that Jesus shares um, with the disciples in the washing of feet. I don't know if any of you have ever been part of a foot washing um, ceremony, but it's so very powerful and, and meaningful and moving. Um, tonight, I want us to see it as more than just Jesus becoming the servant and caring for his disciples. Does he do this? Absolutely. Is it behavior that he models for these men to set an example of the behavior he wants them to emulate? Absolutely. But it's also symbolic of a spiritual cleansing. And I want us to look at that. I want us to read what happens in this cleansing takes place. So we're going to be in the book of John tonight. Um, most of, of our study has taken place, and we've read uh, Matthew and Mark quite a bit, but tonight we're going to be in the book of John. And if you'll turn with me to chapter 13, we're going to read John's account of the foot washing. We're going to start with verse 2. It says, The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, 
you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. All right, so... Um, Peter is shocked in these verses, right? Peter is shocked that his Lord would stoop to wash his feet. And Jesus knows that Peter doesn't really understand how symbolic what he is doing is. Jesus tells him in verse 8, Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Jesus, you see, is the only person who can cleanse us of the dirtiness and the taint of sin. Without the blood of the Lamb, we remain unclean. So then Peter says, well, wash all of me. <laughs> and I love this scene because here is Peter, who is so real to me. This is the guy who climbs out of the boat to walk across the water because he sees the Lord. And then he wants nothing more to reach him, right? And then his faith wobbles a little bit. He lets his brain engage with his heart. And before you know it, he's sinking. And he swears at this very meal. Right, This very meal that he would never deny his Lord, yet in just a few hours' time, in the face of confusion and violence and upset, he does just that. So to me, Peter is so real. He is exactly as I see myself. So often I reach out to the Lord full of spirit and joy, and then I allow my doubt and my worry to enter my mind, and I find myself faltering. So to me, Peter is the perfect example. He is overcome by his love for Christ. He says in his enthusiasm, wash all of me, clean me. But you know, I want you to notice what Christ says. So many times when we read these verses, we think of the image of humble servant, and I think we miss this lesson. It's the confirmation that Jesus gives us as Christians right here in verse 10. Look again, Jesus says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. The cleansing that we receive when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior, it never has to be repeated. When he saves us, when, when we are cleansed of our sins, we don't have to be re-saved. Atonement is complete. I'm going to, you know, you can stay if you would like in John, but I'm going to flip over to the book of, uh, the book of Romans. Um, and I'm going to read uh, Romans chapter 5. Verses 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so it tells us right there that Christ atoned for our sins. Jesus tells Peter, you may need to wash your feet. He's telling us that although our salvation is secured, we still live in fleshly bodies. We still battle sin. So I'm not saying that, by saying that our atonement is complete, I'm not saying that we won't sin in life. 
We're drawn to live Christ-like lives. We are um, to model the Savior as he was while on earth, a person of kindness and love with a servant heart. So even though we don't, as Christians, need to be resaved, right, we may need some spiritual cleansing every once in a while by the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Bible tells us even after we are saved, we won't be without sin. So we have to ask for forgiveness and make a conscious effort to renew our spirit and renew our lives, washing that sin that clings to our feet and walking in the light of Christ. I just think that's a pretty um, powerful image that Jesus gives us there in Scripture in chapter 13 of John. So we cannot forget that there is one man sitting at this table with Jesus who feels very different than Peter. He lacks enthusiasm. Instead, he is filled with frustration. Judas Iscariot sits among the other disciples, seemingly engaged in the conversation and the dinner. Yet Jesus senses what is happening within Judas. Jesus knows the internal struggle Judas is dealing with, and he knows the moment when Judas loses the struggle with sin. We talked on Wednesday in depth about Judas. We talked about the man and what motivated him. He's committed to a plan of action, and he is determined to carry it out. I think he truly believes he will force Jesus into showing himself as the Christ, and all will work itself out. But I also believe at any time he could have stopped and turned from the plan that he had initiated. Just because the betrayal was foretold, it does not prevent Judas from exercising free will. I believe Judas had, up until Jesus asks him to leave, in John chapter 13, verse 27, he had up until that moment to do the right thing. And at that moment when Christ realized that Judas was not going to let go of his self to put aside his plan to accept Jesus, then Jesus orders him gone. You know, we like to make Judas the bad guy. And many say he's one of the worst figures in all of history. Yet, just as I see myself in Peter, I also see myself in Judas. And if you're listening to this podcast and saying, well, I am never like Judas, then you need to re-examine your heart. Because at some point, we have all stepped into sin knowing we were sinning and somehow justifying it to ourselves. It's our human nature. Maybe we didn't cause the death of someone. Maybe we think our actions were not the same as Judas. But I want you to know that it's not the actions themselves that Jesus is focused on. It's more the heart and the reasons behind the actions. What motivates us to sin? What drives us away from God at different moments in our lives? These are the questions we need to think about and to pray over as we linger tonight with the disciples over this lavish Passover meal. We need to be reminded that none of us are too good, too Christian to find ourselves in a pit. It takes more than just words to stay faithful in our walk. It takes hard work. So the hour's late and Jesus and the disciples leave the home where they ate together and head toward the Mount of Olives. And y'all, I just imagine Jesus is so weary. I mean, I imagine him having the kind of weariness that comes not from hard physical labor, but from just a weariness of spirit. He's just seen one of his best friends lost to Satan. He knows he's facing a terrible crucifixion. He's worried over the future of the 11 friends he still has. And he's worried over the future of the people whose lives are in his hands. And I'm not talking about just a few people, but all of mankind. He himself has walked in their shoes, spent time with them, lived a human life, and now understands them, us, as he never could have before. 
He understands our struggles and our joys. And shortly, we'll see him on his knees weeping for us. He makes it to the base of the mountain and he asks the disciples to wait and to pray as he prays. Now, three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all describe a scene where Jesus prays in the garden. They don't share much of the prayer, just a few sentences. One is famous scripture where he says, Father, if possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. However, in the Gospel of John, we see something different. We see a three-part prayer where Jesus prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays for us, mankind. John's gospel leads us to believe this prayer is offered at the dinner prior to them leaving to head to the Mount of Olives. And, you know, it, it makes sense to me. Now, we have, let me back up and say this. We've talked about the fact that John does not write in chronological order in his gospel. And so, you know, I don't know if, if he put the prayer in where he does in chapter 17 and it just the way it reads if you start in 13 with the Lord's Supper and you go through it, it appears that chapters 13 through 17 is all discussion being had by the by Jesus and the disciples as they eat the Passover meal is that the case I don't know um, but it appears to me in scripture that maybe this prayer this three-part prayer that Jesus offers could have been made at the dinner table at Passover. And then following that prayer, they get up and Jesus again prays when they reach the base of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I don't think whether there was one prayer or three prayers or multiple prayers that it really matters. It's what Jesus says in the prayer that matters. And so we're going to look at that. In John chapter 17, so if you want to turn with me there, I want us to take a, a deeper look at this, this prayer together. John chapter 17. It says, After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I love that because huh, if you read Genesis chapter 1 in the creation of the world, God always uses the plural form, us. It was good. He always says, us. Because he exists as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit from the beginning of time until the end of time. And Jesus was part of that. And so when Jesus came as a man to earth and left his heavenly form to come here, to become a man like us, here we see Jesus saying, Take me back into your glory that I might join you again in spirit and form in heaven, just as I have since before the world began. I love that. It's such a connection um, in the story of God. So here we are, and we see Jesus in this first part of the prayer. Jesus affirms the glory of the cross because he knows that glory comes from his death. So he's confirming eternal life, and he says very clearly right there that eternal life comes through knowing God the Father and believing in him through his Son. And then he prays for that return to heaven, recognizing that his job on earth is almost complete. The second part of the prayer starts with verses 6 and goes through 19. Let's read that. 
says in Scripture, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. Of course, we know that it is Judas Iscariot. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. And so the second part of this prayer is all for the disciples. This is such a moving prayer to me. Jesus, the man, offers on behalf of his friends men he has loved, men he has shared this journey with. Men he knows must carry this message of salvation for future generations. You know, and he prays here for their knowledge. He prays for their perseverance. He prays for joy for them. And he prays for the mission that they face. But most of all, he, he prays for protection from the evil one, from Satan, as they are going to be here on earth, his, his place, Right? And then the third part of this prayer is he prays for the believers, for us. And I want us to look at that final, uh, those final verses of chapter 17, starting with verse 20. It says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So Jesus prays for us, for you and me, for the believer. He prays for our unity. He prays for our future presence with him. And he prays for a mutual love one for another. He's praying for the church and the future of the church, what will become the church, right? All believers who believe the gospel message that will be preached to all places and all nations by first the disciples and then generation after generation following. It's a powerful 
chapter, if you will, in Scripture, this chapter 17 of John, this prayer that Jesus offers for the world. And after Jesus prays in the garden at the base of the Mount of Olives, it's nearing morning. They've been up all night. They've had the Passover dinner. Jesus has um, comforted them, offered words. He has shared. If you go back and look at John chapters 14, 15, and 16, he shares with them what is about to happen. We, we skipped over the part um, where um, Peter swears he won't betray Jesus, and Jesus says, oh, but you will. Um, all of that takes place in this evening um, around a table. And then, of course, Jesus and the disciples go to pray. And it is there that we will meet up with Jesus, the disciples, and the soldiers. And, of course, Judas um, early morning on Friday. Um, so today, on Thursday evening, we end our class um, at this moment, just before the soldiers come to arrest Jesus. Tomorrow is Friday. Tomorrow um, we will see both the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus as we continue our discussion then. Blessings to you.